Hello, folks. Welcome back to the uh, podcast. It's Dylan here, and I'm joined again with my hunting partners, Jenny P. and Selena, for our, our part three of our expedition planning podcast series. And in this podcast, I'm really pleased to have uh, Thor from Alpaca Rafts to come on our uh, on our podcast to talk about the rafts, pack crafting, and to help us along this sort of journey of planning an adventure trip. And uh, so I'm excited to get started. I'm back in my home studio on the traditional territories of the uh, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations. And uh, I'm excited to be hanging out with Jenny and Selena. And maybe we'll just go right to Thor and say hello to Thor. Hey, Thor, welcome to the Well Podcast. How are you doing down south? And where are you? Hello. Uh, we are doing good down here. We're down in southwest Colorado, a little town called Mancus. It's about halfway in between Durango and Cortez. Uh, kind of right next to Mesa Verde National Park. Nice part of the world. Yeah, the world. although hot these days. We're in a heat wave that we haven't had in a long time here. Oh, gosh, it just got warm today. Like Today was like the first sunny day here in, the, in, in our part of the world, but it's like nice 22 degrees out, breeze. Mm. And, yeah. yeah, we were 101 on Sunday, but it <laughs> broke yesterday, so we're a little happier now. Right on. Okay, so we got you on here to talk about pack crafts, and I'm mindful of, of time. We're midday here, and everybody's on their lunch breaks. That, uh, but we have a, we had a bunch of stuff I want to chat with you about. So first of all, can you tell us what uh, pack rafting is all about? Yeah, at the very simplest, it's the concept of combining land and water travel into a single backpack. Traditionally, before kind of pack rafting really got started, you know, it's been around for a long time, but before it kind of came along commercially, generally people either went hiking or they went on a float trip, but you didn't do the, um, both of those at once. And in a lot of lower 48, that's really not that much of an issue because most rivers have roads up them or something like that. And, and you kind of go hiking in the backcountry on a trail or there's a bridge built over things. But when you get into... Alaska, Yukon, even you know a lot of British Columbia, you end up in, in situations where if you want to just hike somewhere on the map, not necessarily on a trail, you're going to run into a waterway that is going to uh, effectively stop your progress. Uh, either that could just be as little as crossing a river or it actually floating down a river. Um, and, and especially, I think, in Alaska, northern British Columbia, Yukon territories, you have situations where you can't even make progress on land next to rivers because it's either swampy or brushy. And the idea of a pack raft is, well, now you have a boat that goes in your backpack that suddenly now when you get to the water, you can use the water to your advantage. And so they kind of started as this idea of, well, we're going to hike mostly hike and then occasionally we'll float. And that is totally flipped. Now, let's kind of like find a spot where we can walk in a little ways and then we can float for a long ways. But that, but this idea is still this basic idea of hiking and floating out of a single backpack. That's pretty exciting. Now, maybe just for context, could you tell us uh, one of the bigger adventures that you've taken on that has included the, the, the pack craft technology? Well, still the biggest one by far is the first one is the second one I ever did. So back up a little bit. Um, I didn't know what pack rafting was. I grew up in rural Alaska um, with parents that were super outdoorsy. My mom was a kayaker and my dad was a climber and we did all these venture trips. And I went to college in Colorado and there was a grant program 
for students to do these four day, a 14 day wilderness adventure. And here I was, Alaska kid, like I mushed dogs and did all this kind of stuff. And I had no idea what to do. And my parents introduced me to a gentleman named Roman Dial. And he says, do you have to try pack rafting? And I'm like, well, what's pack rafting? And he basically explained what I just did. And he suggested that I try a trip in the Alaska range that ended up being 180 or so miles. And at that time, there weren't any boats available. Like we had to go down to, uh, I think, Kmart and buy the 69.99 Seveler trail boat made out of PD which was very cold, very wet, super delicate. We blew giant holes in them, but the concept kind of stuck with me. And then two years later in 2000, we did a, uh, myself and four college friends did a 700 mile traverse of Alaska's Brooks Range. So we started in the central Arctic refuge in the Eastern Brooks Range and, and walked all the way to the village of Kobuk over 39 days. And that's where like this whole like pack rafting thing really kind of settled in my mind. And, and alpaca raft grew out of that trip. And my mom and I developed the first alpaca raft from that trip with a higher performance, more durable, still backpack weight boat. And since then, over the last 20 years, we've just kind of, people have taken them all over the world. They've traversed Alaska. They've traversed every province in Canada, South America, New Zealand, Russia the Kamchatka, Asia, it's pretty incredible where people have taken them. And they really span the gamut these days from, you know, still some simple classic models that are very lightweight in the five pound range for doing awesome trips, but that, that where you may be a little more cautious of water all the way up to, we've got a prototype out right now where guys are running some of the class five classic kayak test pieces in the high Sierras with, with them so they're they've come a long way over 20 years oh so I, exciting. I love that you said 39 day trip because we're <laughs> we're on a two-week trip ahead of us and i'm thinking hmm, 39 days our little trip is nothing this is going to be fine <laughs> did you have a food drop on your 39 day trip what's that did you have a food drop on your 39 day trip? yeah we had we had four. The longest that I've done personally on on a complete self support is about four weeks, about about two weeks, fourteen days. So, I, you know, you could do longer, but I think you have to start skimping on some of the comforts of life that I've grown accustomed like to. Beer, like food, yeah, oh. like beer. You know, um, yeah, definitely food is is the problem. That's really the limiting factor because fourteen days of food for me is about 30 pounds, you know, and I could wow. maybe get that down to 25 pounds, but that's still a lot. By the time you have a 40 pound base weight or 35 pound base weight, you're like, oh man, my pack's 60 pounds. So if I'm gonna go for 20 days, oh, I don't wanna carry an 80 pound pack anywhere, yeah. unless it has like an animal in it, and then then, I, then I'll suck. Because <laughs> Jenny, your goal was to have a lot of whiskey, right? So you were going to replace the weight of the whiskey with the weight of the animal at the end. Was that the the plan? Well, yeah, I'll just drink whiskey to start and then eat my sheep along the way. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> Jenny's got very high expectations. Maybe Jenny, do you want to do you want to just share with with uh, with Thor our, our general trip plan without giving away our, our specifics to our North American audience of, of our sheep spot? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we plan on driving up north, which will be about 1,600-kilometer drive, um, roughly. And then uh, from there, we will fly into um, the headwaters of a river that we've 
discuss with a couple of different people that has uh, definitely some sheep on it. And from there, we will uh, pack her up down a ways, pull over occasionally in the evenings to camp, and then hike through those mountains to look for sheep. And then we're going to continue along uh, the river. It's about 100 miles, Dylan's saying. I haven't actually sourced that out, but uh, I'll trust you. And back to the truck. And then further down, close to the truck, we're going to be rafting through elk country. So uh, potentially get an elk as well. That sounds like about the coolest trip ever. <laughs> now, we'll take, we're going to take lots of pictures. Is it, is it doll sheep or stone sheep? Uh, stone sheep. Stone sheep. I'm even more jealous. <laughs> it's yeah. a pretty neat. I mean, we're very fortunate. Like a large portion of the Northern Rockies has, you know, north, northeastern BC is stone sheep country. Yeah. And there's a lot of these types of possible trips. And and this is what's been so fun about discovering pack rafting is like you just have this other way of potentially accessing what was remote wilderness that I I you know I couldn't with that with the exception of having horses, which is a tremendous yep. investment. And even like jet boating here, like 20 years ago, that was a way of accessing mountains. Uh, but now it's, it's just, there's been a lot of investment in jet boating. The technology in jet boats too is, has increased. There's a lot of people accessing areas with jet boats. So, you know, this is kind of a neat one that with a little bit of work, um, you know, hiking, you can act, maybe get access to some remote areas, which I'm really excited about. So that's kind of what we're building into this trip. I, that's I should just, awesome. And you can cover a lot of ground too. That's that's kind of one of the upsides is once you're on the river, if you're doing a, a float-based hunt like that, you're not necessarily like, oh, there's no sheep here. Well, let's move down one drainage. And that doesn't take us all like a couple of days to do. It takes us a couple of hours floating. Yeah, that's uh, so that's so so exciting. Um uh, cover ground and and yeah, and then obviously the the ease of I mean the potential of instead of hiking a sheep out. 100 yep. miles then you've got that well we're hoping that we're comfortable with the heavier loads in the boats and that's something we'll chat about um yeah. i do want to just tell you a little bit about the river just as we're talking we're going to ask a few questions around the capacity so this is like a you, you know a northern rocky mountain river that probably has a big spring freshet so it blows everything right out uh um, yep. so there's not a lot of wood or debris in in it's just big open gravel wash um yep. uh, i've been on the second half of this river they flew into it and took big rafts down it. Um, and there was really nothing over, you know, that there, there was, it was all class two or less water. Um, yeah. Coming down. So not, yeah. Classic splashy high speed mountain um, gravel bar based river rather than, you know, when, when we, when we talk about rivers, you know, from a whitewater perspective, we're always looking for bedrock because bedrock creates awesome rapids. But from when we don't want awesome rapids, we look for gravel because gravel doesn't really create much. And then when we get into gravel, we're more concerned about situations where we might have wood, like you mentioned. So that pretty much, I think, yeah, splashy gravel is what I'm anticipating. Yeah. There's one, one big canyon that you know are a couple spots that we know we're going to have to portage and again that's what's so exciting about these boats is, is we're going backpack weight and we can walk our walk our backpacks and our boats around these things if if jenny's killed a ram and a six-point bull elk and a moose that she'll be doing she does a that lot before. of walking yeah so i'm going to encourage her to you know hold back her eagerness until we get beyond some of the the portage points but um but yeah we're excited about that so um so maybe we have some questions for you. Yeah. To, to, to get Dude. into. Okay. So 
so the biggest question for me like so we so jenny and i have been uh playing with these rafts we've got uh i bought a forager and a mule last year for adventure and then this year we bought a second forager um and uh we've been going to our local rivers here in squamish uh, actually during COVID, it was a great way to for us to self-isolate and still recreate um yep and and so we were going down the river once a week just to get comfortable on the boats uh and seeing what they could do and progressively getting more confident but these boats are so light like i just think the material is just so light uh, and i'm going gosh what can this take like can it can we drag these over rocks or like if i bounce against the log like what's going to happen and uh, maybe you can answer that yeah i mean that's that's kind of the i think for new pack rafters that's always the thing of how in the world is this thing not going to tear a giant hole and leave me stranded and generally they don't and but there are some reasons for that you know we've been working with the materials in the boats for a long time um there's there's nothing i would say magic about it uh our materials generally are about the highest quality you can get in the industry we're sourcing them all um, here in the United States, um, and they're laminated. But the principle, um, even on some of the other brands that may not be kind of the high-end premium, you're still getting pretty good materials. And and what they are essentially is a um, a densely woven nylon. So when when we talk about fabric, we can talk about the thread that it's made out of. So nylon or polyester, or in the case of the clothes you wear, cotton, and then um then the second part is the weave and you can weave something more dense there's a million different ways to weave fabric and then in the case of our boats we're going to laminate that with some polyurethane and the polyurethane is what keeps it uh airtight and there's a lot of variables that go into that but basically what we're looking for is a really densely woven lightweight nylon that has enough polyurethane on it so that the boats when you inflate them they are relatively stiff for how light they are um, but we are also blowing up to a relatively low pressure we're talking a pound to two psi and the difference between that and a much heavier boat is that when you hit an object with that kind of softer pressure now this would feel really still firm to your hand but relative to hitting a rock or a stick or something in the water the boat deforms and kind of just glides over it rather than resists, catches, and then tears. And then that polyurethane coating that we're putting on them, that is also a very, uh, in relative terms, hard coating and very slick. So it hits a rock and it tends to just slide over and scrape. And so the kind of holes you tend to get in boats over time, or boats over the time, are like little pinholes and things like that. They are pretty easy to repair on the side of the river. Generally don't stop you from um, floating for the rest of your day and you might repair them overnight and but uh, they're really kind of designed around all that so it's mostly it's fabric it's design and then it's a, it's a bunch of other little factors that go in there but for the most part you know with many thousands of boats out on the water I would say that our repair guys repair less than five tears a year that are over three inches long Wow that's really encouraging yeah they do lots of little repairs and some other replacement stuff but you, we generally don't see people have a significant major failure of anything when they're out because i mean i guess like my my biggest concern of course is like coming broadside to a sharp rock or, or some uh wood debris that i can't 
can't paddle away from and I, it catches the side of the boat and pulls down, you know, four feet down the side of the boat. And I've got a four foot tear on the side of the boat. And it's really rare in our boats, extremely rare. It's happened, I've done it on a really sharp piece of limestone before. I've seen it done on rebar before. Hopefully you don't have any rebar in the river up there. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty rare to have that happen. So there it's, and that's just the fabric and the, and the um, tension in, uh, in the inflation and how all that works together. Perfect. Cause that's encouraging. Well, and that, and that lends itself to sort of, I was, I actually bought a bunch of strips of fabric uh, from yep. the wholesaler here in BC. Yeah. Uh, Mount Waddington outdoors. And that's great. Sam Waddington shop there. And, and he kitted me out with a bunch of stuff that I could potentially use, but that was my biggest concern. Like, having enough fabric for that long, long enough potential cut, but it doesn't sound like it's a reality. So, so we're good and set there. Pretty uncommon. I mean, it's, it's theoretically possible, but it's pretty uncommon. And then the, the repair material that we recommend more than anything is Tyvek tape, which is that, you know, the building house wrap and the adhesive on that tape is works really good with our materials. And if you, even if you get that super long tear, you get over to the side of the river you dry off the boat get it nice and dry um and and clean you can repair a three foot long tear with tyvek tape it will your boat will hold air you know it requires a bunch of layers of it to kind of like work around the tear. but uh, we've been able to do that without a whole lot of trouble like going back to one of the i think second or third year we were in business well we had a customer that kind of did a trip up uh, near Anchorage and lost their boat, fell off bushwhacking through a bunch of alders. And okay. they went up a week later to find it, kind of following their route. And they found it, but a grizzly had found it first and had a big old party with that boat. Carried it around, shred and, and you know, it probably had 200 holes in it, you know, as this bear had chewed and kind of, chewed this thing up and uh i it, there may even still be a youtube video up of this being done but um they sent it back to us and we were like well let's try this out and we were able to repair the entire boat with one roll of tyvek tape and got it floating again now it's definitely not as good as it was but w if you'd had to roll a tyvek tape and that had happened to you on a trip you still could have floated out that's great. That's one of our sorry, go ahead, Jenny. Out into the gear list. <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll put one beer aside and we'll put a roll of tie back yeah. in to our pile. You know, somebody, somebody invented, uh, I think it was actually in Alaska and invented powdered beer. And I'm not sure how easy it is to get, but it does exist. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. Google, <laughs> we're going to be Googling powdered beer after this. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know somebody also invented just straight up powdered alcohol, like, you know, the functional equivalent of Ever Everclear, but that's illegal in all 50 states now because they quickly realized that people adding powdered alcohol to their Red Bull was not a recipe for a <laughs> good day. Yeah, I'm kind of just looking forward to like not having any alcohol after COVID for the past like three or four <laughs> months. It's like, I'm ready for a break, you know? Yeah, so ready to get in the mountains and relax. Yeah, relax and just get feel purified, you know? Uh, yeah. Okay, Jenny, you got a question? Well, yeah, if we're talking about uh, gearless and stuff, and uh, I, am I able to add a gun mount to this boat? <laughs> not, 
Not like a turret? <laughs> like a but, turret. You know, I was thinking mostly Rambo style. <laughs> no. no um, in all so seriousness, like, uh, my question is how to, do you know how most hunters like pack their rifles on these boats? No, it varies. I'll tell you how I do it. Um, so generally when I'm hunting, I'm very rarely hunting from the boat, although I have, but when I'm not hunting from the boat, which is often, I'm just like floating out. I put my rifle inside the tubes in that cargo, cargo fly. Oh, and, yeah. and I just make sure that I have like a pack or something underneath it. Or if I have a padded case with me or a, so a sock, so that way it's, you don't want it on the, when you're packing your boat, you don't want any hard stuff on the bottom because if you hit a rock, and with something hard and the boat is in between the hard thing and the rock that you will put a hole in the boat. Um, that's kind of one of the things, but I like putting my rifle inside. It stays nice and dry in there. Um, and it's a, it's a good spot for it. Moose hunting, you're typically going to often actually going to be hunting from the river in and out, kind of like, um, checking, um, obvious spots, or you might even, um, sneak up on an animal. And, um, but usually when I'm hunting, I definitely putting my rifle in my boat and I've never personally used a rifle for bear protection. I know in Canada, um, you're not necessarily carrying a handgun, but certainly in Alaska, I'll carry a, a, a handgun for bear protection and I put my rifle in the boat. Um, but a lot of people do put their rifles, uh, um, outside the cargo fly. And that's just a choice of whether if you have it outside the cargo fly, it's going to get wet and that's up and that's up to you just because it's a wet environment when you're paddling. Um, there are a few gun case manufacturers. Actually, one of them is up in the Homer, Alaska that make a waterproof gun case. So then you can put your rifle in that, put that um, in the boat with you in the forage. And I just like set it down the side of the tubes on the inside and um, clip it to one of the D rings. So in the unlikely event that you flip the boat over, fell out of the boat, it wouldn't go away. And, and I just work with that. Cool. Yeah, I think just want to, so maybe we'll, we'll build on that, just some, some packing thoughts. And you've already given me a couple of good thoughts around, well, one thing we should let people know is that when you say inside the boat, like there's a functionality in these boats, there's a giant zipper on the stern, I believe, that gives yep. you access inside the boat and you can actually stuff, you know, dry All gear. here inside, yeah. So I've been using, uh, we've been using that zipper. It's called, it's, um, we call it the cargo fly system. Um, we use a zipper from T-Zip that's an airtight zipper uh, installed in the stern of the boat and it allows you to access inside the tubes. And it really gives you uh, it, three things. One, it gives you a tremendous amount of space to store gear. Two is your gear is dry in there. And three is the, is the gear is, the center of gravity is low because all the weight's down in the, in the bottom and that makes the boat actually more stable. Um, I personally have not done this. I generally, when I am hunting and packing out, I put my personal gear inside the boat where it stays dry and then I put the meat outside, um, you know, in between my legs on, on, in the front of the boat, that kind of thing. And I'll often carry a dry bag for that if it's really wet. Um, and then I'll put the meat in a dry bag during the day and then I hang it um, during in the evening. I just talked to, uh, Brian call, uh, uh, Gritty Bowman yesterday and he deer hunting and bear hunting. They put everything inside the boat. Now I think that is going to make the boat stink, but you can, 
wash it out and bleach it out after you're done, but he puts everything inside and paddles out mm. that way. So you're, it certainly can be done. You're saying I can put bleach inside that boat? Well, like after you're like come out of the trip, if the boat smells really bad, open that zipper, hang it out to dry, wash it with a, with a um, solution of, of bleach water. It'll be fine. It'll kill everything in there and let oh. it dry and clean it out. You definitely, and to go to the cargo fly, the cargo fly is like that zipper's probably the most helpful feature in terms of um, performance and capacity you can add to a pack raft. It's also one of the most frustrating in the sense that it is a maintenance part that can cause you grief in the backcountry. It won't fail on you, but it, if you don't treat it well, it will. You can have trouble closing it because that zipper gets dry or you get sand in it. And I see people, for the most part, I see people consistently abuse their cargo flies and they still work fine. But if you treat them well, they work really well. And what I mean is, when it, you get a book your boat, it's going to come with a little. Um, tube of lubricant, a couple of pieces of t-shirt material, and a little instruction thing. And that instruction thing is to get the lubricant on that t-shirt material. And literally every time you use the cargo fly, just wipe down the outside of that zipper with that lubricant. And it really helps it keep running in super smooth condition. And then in the backcountry, my zipper is always closed. It is only open when I'm putting stuff in or taking out. Otherwise it's closed. When I get back to the home i'm gonna open it up let the inside of the boat dry out but in the back country i want it closed because sand is sort of the enemy of that zipper and so if you leave the boat and i watch people do this they get out on shore they open the cargo fly they pull their gear out they stumble up set up camp and they just leave the boat open and then the next thing they know the wind's picked up and it's blowing dirt and sand into that zipper and then in the morning they're trying to get the thing working again so it's not, it's more of like one of those things, like if you can think about it from a rifle, you don't want sand in your action. You're just gonna do what you can to avoid that. Cargo fly is the same thing. You don't want sand in it, but it's not that hard to keep sand out of it. But a lot of people, um, a lot of people kind of think that you can just kind of do whatever you want to a pack raft and abuse it. And they're built to hold up to that, but they're better if they're treated well. Like with most good quality gear, just yeah, take care exactly. of it a little bit and it'll, it'll perform for a long time. Um, yeah. Okay. That, so we're kind of moving okay, so into. Go ahead, I Jenny. had another question about packing my boat. Yep. If I'm, uh, if I'm doing this, considering the, the zip is in the back, do you, I want most of the weight in the back, in the bow of that boat or sorry, in the stern of that boat? So the one person boats come with uh or you can order these two internal dry bags and there's actually clips to hold them in place and they hold and they you they're right along the sides where your legs would be so they're even you want those evenly weighted the bigger boats like your forager they don't have that because there's just a tremendous amount of space in there and i don't we don't know whether you're going to put a single backpack or whether you're going to put you know an, uh, uh, an elk a sheep a moose and four backpacks in there. So the general rule of thumb is if it's a little bit of weight on something like the forager, it could just go all right in the stern there. If it's more of a, a medium amount of volume and weight, then you're going to start sliding stuff up the sides with an even weight on each side. And then you're kind of your heavier items in the back and you just can keep moving it forward. So we've done, Grand Canyon trips, you know, 15 days self-support Grand Canyon 
where we're bringing a whole bunch of extra uh, things like I'll throw in like a down pillow um, <laughs> and, and throw that all the way in the front of the boat. In that case, I've just got the whole boat stuffed with gear, lighter stuff, a little bit lighter stuff up front and then kind of along the sides evenly weighted and then a little bit of the heavier stuff in the back is what I do. Perfect. Thank you. It's pretty neat. So yeah, because so we're essentially like stopping it full of gear and then inflating the boat and then wrapping for the day. So whatever you need available for your day, you leave out of the boat and everything else to put in. We just exactly. bought we just bought a uh Sam Waddington put put me onto this like giant pump to top up the air pressure on on the bigger rafts. He he was recommending uh I don't know yep. what they're they K-pump? Yeah, a K-pump. Yeah. There's a yeah, yeah. BBC pipe that turned into a pump. Yeah, and we're now doing a um um the k mini i don't know how big the one he set you up with is but um we worked with k pump um they've been offering this pump for years but they have a little one called k mini it's still pretty good size but it's like i think 15 inches long and three inches in diameter and not like two like two and a half feet long no no this is the mini for sure it's small well relatively small weighs a couple pounds did he get it with the adapter that fits onto our boats? Yeah, yeah, and I also okay, got a he, little pressure gauge as well, a, a pressure valve that uh, I think it it doesn't allow for more than two and a half pounds oh, great. of pressure. Yeah, yeah, that makes it. Those little K pumps are awesome for that, and they'll be great for that trip because you're not, um, you know, they're they're totally reasonable for most trips. Um, if you're doing like a strict old school pack rafting trip where you're going to walk 70% of the time and float 30, you kind of are like, well, I'm not going to bring this pump before you guys are doing that pump is perfect. Yeah. Okay. So I'm excited about that. And then, so maximum air pressure, what's the maximum air pressure I'd, I, you can run these boats at? What's the we benefit? recommend not going a whole lot over two. Um, but I will tell you that we have, um, explosion tested them at the shop <laughs> and we've gotten them up to around five and five is a scary amount of air in one of those boats like you know we have like the hose attached to it and like we're standing around the corner like adding <laughs> more air as we go and even at five we have never gotten a boat to like spontaneously explode um, and that's because our seams are all uh, triple seams. So we stitch them and then we seam tape them twice. So the stitching holds everything together and the seam tape is what seals it. And around somewhere between four and five PSI, we start to get significant leaks out the seam tape, but the boat doesn't fail. Okay. You would never, you would, you would be terrified if you if you even got your boat to four in the field. You'd be like, I'm sure that this boat is going to um, go off like a bomb. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, for the most part, two to two and a half feels really firm. Okay, and then that and that's not too much rigidity that it can't withstand some puncture potential. No, it's not. But that you brought up a really good point. So, let's say you're in the backcountry and you're in a night on a nice big river system, fairly deep water, and you, you want some more performance out of your boat. Sure. Blow it up to two and a half PSI. But let's say you're on a tiny little section that's really skinny and thin and, and there's gravel bars everywhere and you're going to be dragging the boat across gravel bars all day. Just do like moderate mouth air pressure in there, maybe a pound, pound and a quarter. And that's going to make that boat, it's not going to handle as well, but you're going to spend most of the day dragging it over things. So you kind of want that little bit lower air pressure. So you can adjust your air pressure uh, depending on the water you're on. Okay, that's cool. 
Yeah, that was one of the things I was like. So there was a there was a moment there where I think like we were doubled up in the forager, and of course you come to that like you try to slide down that little riffle into the main run, and of course there's just not quite enough water in it, so your butts are sitting down on the gravel, and, and you're bumping along. Yeah, yeah, you're bumping. And so like the, the like the easy way of doing it is just to shuffle along and like you time your oh, yeah. shuffles. Uh, that is the, the pack raft butt scoot. <laughs> okay. If you're in a single boat, you're like, you know, you. Like if you're in individual boats, you're often, you know, in a spray deck and you don't want to get out of the boat. And so you get into these big braided rivers and, you know, everybody t picks their own channel or their own way through the channel. And sure enough, somebody makes it through and then somebody just augers in and then you see them and they're just trying to scoot their boat along and then they're prying back there with their paddle. Um, and, you know, the boats are built to, built to take that a lot, um, you know, and I think it just kind of depends on your boat. Like we do have some like our really lightweight boats, like the Caribou. Like if you have the Caribou with a Aquabound whiskey paddle, which is one of our lightest paddles, you probably shouldn't be trying to scoot and pry your, with your paddle. If you're sitting there with a Forager and a, um, um, the what a, uh, the the Shred Apart paddle, like you could pr like I'm not recommending this, but you could probably try to chop firewood with the Shred Apart paddle. It's that tough. Like, so you can definitely get out and just like reef on that paddle and kind of pry yourself off those gravel bars. Okay. That, okay. That's a good, that, that's one of the, I could foresee us spending a lot of time scooting or even getting out of the boat and dragging the whole boat with meat or load in it, um, you know, over rocks. And, and I want, and I want the confidence. I mean, I, it sounds like those it happens boats are, a lot. They're, they're, they're built for that. They're built for it. So that's, that's my concern for sure. Um, and uh, while we're on the question of pressure, I looked at the manual and it was talking about tempering the boats. How important of a step is that? Well, you're going to notice, especially on the forger, the forger has a lot of air volume. In it. It's a big boat, um, especially for a single chamber boat. So you're going to, you pump that up with that K pump and it's going to feel super hard. Well, if it's 70 degrees out and you drop it in a 40 degree river in about five minutes, it's going to be like half the air pressure. It's going to feel like an absolute noodle because all that air in the boat has cooled down. And so, with, especially with the Forger, maybe the Oryx, those two boats more than any other, we then send them out to people and then they call customer service and they say, I'm, my boat has a hole in it because I put it in the water and it was suddenly like deflated. No, no you've, all the air cooled down and shrunk. You need to add more air into it. So tempering is, is super important that way. It's really nice with the pump because you can just turn around and pump it up. Um, but typically what I like to do if I'm, I'm not doing that is I'll blow it up on the side of the river and then I'll go set it in the water, splash a bunch of water over the side, let it cool down and blow it up again. And usually it's pretty good. Cool. It's awesome. And, and by the same token, if it's a hot, sunny day and you, you pull over for lunch or to go for a quick, how, um, hike scout or something like that and you drag the bar, boat up onto a gravel bar let some air out of it because that sun's going to heat up the internal temperature of the boat a lot and again you're not going to get up to four or five where we've tested the boats too but it's um you it's better to deflate some of the air out and then come and top it off later that sounds great um so i know that, so well we still got you i don't know how much time you got left here but I, i'd love for you to sort of break down what you would be bringing with you for a repair kit or, a, a, you know, anticipating any potential challenges that we might have on, on this type of trip. 
Yeah, so we send out what we call a basic repair kit with every boat, and that's a little tube of aqua seal, which is a repair glue. It takes about eight hours to cure. Um, a couple of different types of um, simple adhesive patch material, and then a little piece of fluorofabric. That's what comes in the repair kit. But if I'm going on like a big trip, I'm probably trying to carry between um, three and four little tubes of Aquaseal or, or one big tube. I like the little tubes better because Aquaseal in particular, once you unscrew the top and puncture the um, aluminum seal on it, it tends to dry out. It won't dry out the next day or the next week, but it tends to dry out. So I like having, I'd rather have four little tubes than one big tube of it because then I just keep working through that. Um, that you can patch a ton of stuff. And then I don't personally work, um, carry a ton of the, like we put um, a material called patch and go. It works great in there, but I don't carry more than that. I just bring a roll of Tyvek tape and the length of the trip determines the size of the roll. Like when we go on, a, on the Grand Canyon with 10 people, we'll bring two full rolls for the whole trip. Whereas if I'm going to go on a, a, a 10 day backpack trip with just my wife and I, myself, I might only bring like 20 feet of it. Okay. So for what you guys are doing, I just recommend a roll of, of Tyvek tape is going to kind of be able to solve most of your woes. I really recommend having some sort of sewing kit with you in the really rare event that you do get one of those, those bigger tears in the boat. Um, you can repair it with Tyvek tape that day. But if you want a more long lasting patch, if you got still got five or six days left in your trip, you're going to stitch up that tear in camp one night and then use your aqua seal to seal over that whole thing. And then you're going to have a pretty strong repair that's going to work you for the rest of the trip. Okay. That sounds good. What about uh, like caps, nozzles, any of the, any of that so, type of stuff? I recommend a spare valve cap. Um, there's a one thing that see, you see more frequently than people losing a valve cap is there's an O-ring inside the valve cap that can get um, lost or fall out of the valve cap. We ship there's a spare valve spare O-ring in the repair kit, so that's pretty good to go. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, I would if you're doing a trip where you have four boats. One valve cap for all four boats is fine. The other thing with the valve caps is to remember that if you have an inflation bag or a couple inflation bags, the inflation bag has a valve cap on the back. Now it has a big hole in it, but it's also on the back side of that inflation bag is a, is a, is a threaded nut and a washer. So if you've got a Ziploc bag, if you've got a piece of waterproof material or anything, you can put it over that hole and screw it on and now you've got your spare valve cap. So we try to design a lot of the stuff that we have so there's kind of a dual use of it. Okay, that sounds great. This is starting to feel pretty achievable. Or I'm feeling more and more comfortable, Jenny, as we as we talk to Thor. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good. I think that time back tape is huge. Um, I'm assuming I need a pretty big needle if I'm going to be sewing this wrap back together if necessary. Nope, just a normal size like what you'd carry in your normal like backcountry sewing kit. You don't need okay. super heavy duty thread. You really just need, so when you think about it this way, let's say you had a six inch tear in your boat. 
that you can get Tyvek tape will absolutely cover that. You're going to run one piece over it and then run some pieces out around it to kind of structurally reinforce it. But you can also take your thread and just start at one end and do, it's not a baseball stitch, but it's almost like an overlapping stitch where you're basically going and going down through one side and up through the other and just over the top of itself. Just work it all the way along. You're only going to be an eighth inch out off the edge the whole way. So you're only doing about a quarter inch wide little stitch as you're wrapping that through. And what all you're trying to do is create structural stability in the fabric so that when air pressure is trying to pull it apart, it has some thread to hold that holds it there. As soon as you put the aqua seal over that whole stitch, once the aqua seal dries, aqua seal itself is incredibly strong. That's going to be 90% of your strength. But the reason for the thread is it provides a little bit of extra strength at the start. And the thread, the aqua seal tends to make fabric curl. So if you've got a six inch hole and you just try to put aqua seal over it, the hole, the hole is just going to open up before the aqua seal sets. Whereas when you have the thread there, it holds everything together and then you're sealing it um, as far as that goes. Cool. All right. So it's the, the normal the normal needle and thread kit that you would take for backcountry tent repair or clothing repairs works just fine for backcraft. Awesome. So we've covered kind of what where I wanted to get to as far as like load, loading the past, what they're capable of, repair kits, repair strategies. Um, is there anything else you'd be thinking about going into a trip like this? You know, what I try to tell people is most things in the back country, they can, I, I, I understand how intimidating they can sometimes feel to people that haven't spent a lot of time in the back country. And, you know, I've been super fortunate in my life that I've been raised doing backcountry trips since I was a little kid. But most things in the backcountry come down to what I call just judgment. And judgment does come from experience, but most people have in their back of their mind like some ideas of like, this doesn't seem like the best idea. So if you're dumping on the river and the river starts to pick up speed and you can kind of see that, you know, hey, wow, it looks like the, it's not a broad valley anymore. It's narrowing down. I can't see around on the corners and the river's getting faster that's a really good time to pull over take your your kind of blood pressure and say you know am i comfortable do i feel really strong like i can get out anywhere i want or do i feel a little out of control here and one of the cool things about pack rafts pull over maybe walk downstream a half mile oh no it's totally fine it's going to ease off here or oh wow there's a full-on canyon down there and I'm not ready for that. And then you get out. People get into trouble when they just kind of let themselves be kind of drug into a situation that's a little bit over their head. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But, uh, I, you know, most people have an intuitive sense inside of them. Like, it, you know, I think even when you read most accident reports in the river in that kind of a situation, people afterwards were like, yeah, I felt like it was getting a little crazy. They just kind of like, went one turn too far don't go one two turn too far that's maybe that's what you do when you're you know training around squamish and you know you got a really good paddle with your paddler with you to help you but when you're doing a big backcountry trip you kind of just take one step further back in terms terms of what you 
think is your comfort limit and you stop there. Absolutely. I can't, that's a big part of, you know, when I talk about adventure planning and in and, and some of the courses I do, it's that you're not skiing at a ski hill here where there's a, where there's a train staff to come pick you up after you, after your, your backflip doesn't work out off that hit. Like it's a different set of risks that we're comfortable taking and, and we plan for those risks and try to reduce them to zero. And, and that's what I love about the pack crafting idea is that like, no matter how scary the water looks, I can walk around it. And or how uncertain yep. I feel, I can walk around, and that's what I'm most excited about. It gives you gives you that comfort level. You don't have to push yourself through uh, bits of water. So the main objective yeah, for us is going to be like not shooting the moose on the side of the river. Then <laughs> limits are a bit. Then then you become once you got a moose in your boat, you're like I don't know. Let's we could probably Every, rip it. You know? <laughs> everything's yeah, exactly. It changes your judgment level. Yeah, I my favorite thing that I always like to tell people is um, like I'm pretty sure that I could go. Um, do the stikine in a pack raft you know stikine's like one of the hardest whitewater rivers in the world and people are like really and i'm like yeah because i float from the highway until i saw the canyon and then i get out and i and then i float again <laughs> i like that so maybe that so, brings me to my next question for you okay so we're up here in bc and we uh, we know how blessed we are with the yeah. the natural beauty here where would be your where would be your first choice adventure uh, to come and bring your raft and, and, and do something here in, in BC? What would be your what would be your top choice dream trip? Well, um, <laughs> I can tell you that the trip that's been highest on my list for probably close to a decade is to explore the Taku watershed. Oh, cool! Yeah. So that's super northern BC. Um, there's you know, and, and I, it's, it's funny I say that because it's not really, you know, if you say the Taku watershed, it's not, I'm not really giving much away other than to say that there's a giant watershed that's about 300 kilometers by 250 kilometers. And there's seven major river systems that go in there, but there's no, not a single one has a road crossing it. So it is, you have to fly or walk into that watershed. And the rivers range from big, broad glacier rivers to super technical backcountry class five. And it's remote and primitive. And then you end up at the bottom floating through the um, essentially the coast range between BC and Southeast Alaska. And then you can get picked up by a boat and taken to Juneau. It's pretty much um, one of the wildest river sheds uh, I think left maybe in the world. And I know it's actually continually under um, a mine threat up there um, yeah. that they keep talking about. Um, but I've really wanted to go to the Taku for a while. I've also really wanted to go and uh, there's some from the hunting and fishing, more from the fishing side, there's some incredible exploratory water in the upper um, Skeena and Nass basins that are, um, you know, I'm, I know a few steelheaders probably helicopter in, but, for the most part, it's all unexplored water up in those headwaters, and I'd love to see some of that. Yeah, that's all that tall tan territory. We we flew in there last year uh, for yeah. our caribou adventure, and, and uh, some of them is spectacular country. Um, the whole sacred headwaters just looks just stunningly beautiful. Yeah, yeah, they, they, you know, it's a real like that that part of the world that anybody that you know in in my community that that, that ventured up there, it's it's so weather dependent up there. Like the weather can just, I mean, it just presents the most beautiful the most beautiful pristine place in the world 
and then minutes later it can all be taken away by the weather and then all of a sudden it comes back again and it's like it's a gift every time the clouds part <laughs> but you do oh, run the right. risk of, of having a 10-day trip where the clouds don't part <laughs> yeah but it's still worth it and you still get drawn back to that part of the world and it's and it's far enough away that it's it's just it's you know I think it's I think Northern BC is quieter than Alaska, in every way. Hmm. That's interesting. I wonder if it probably is. You know, I mean, it's just it's just there's a lot. It's not a lot of access in in Northern BC. There's only sort of the two roads that kind of. Yeah, and it's and it's you know I think Alaska has become. I, I love Alaska. It's you know where I grew up, and it's an incredible place. But Alaska is very well known for its adventure, and it's you know. Um, even though there's not very many roads in Alaska, the vast majority of the state is is never more than a, a two to three hour foot plane right away. And, you know, that kind of northern BC area. Yeah, there's a road, but it's a long way from anywhere to get there. It's it's a lot more logistically easy for me to go to the, the Western Brooks Range, which is by actual miles from where I am much further, but it's a lot, you know, I'm like, I jump on one plane to Denver or one plane to Fairbanks, and then I'm on a small plane and I'm in the Northern Brooks range. If I'm, if I want to go to like the remotest parts of Northern BC, I'm like, hmm, plane to Denver, plane to Seattle, plane to Vancouver, switch airlines, plane to maybe Smithers, then a car rental that's probably not available, then 10, 12, 14 hours in a car, then maybe finding the one bush pilot for 100 miles and then maybe getting in there. Yeah, and there's nowhere to fly. Like there's there's a yeah. handful of lakes that you can fly into, there's a handful of airstrips that some people may fly into there depending on their relationship with the guide outfitters. So it's definitely, yeah. uh, it requires a lot of research. That was our one of our first uh, episodes in the series. Like how do you figure out this stuff and how do you find uh, how to get access? And we talked about that in our first episode. Uh, this yeah. has been so fun, Thor, and I, I maybe I'll keep you for a second after I say goodbye. No but, worries. Uh, um, first, I, I want to thank you for, for for hanging out with us at Eat Well Podcast. Do you spend a lot of time in the kitchen? I do. Okay, perfect. Because I got a, I got an Eat Wild uh, as a gift. I'll give you our Eat Wild uh, yeah. uh, apron here, so they'll, they'll put that in the mail as a thank you for spending a bit of your time. Uh, we're really excited to obviously look where uh, you know our team is going to be taking pictures. We'll probably be podcasting if we can. We we have our podcast kit in a waterproof gear so if we could fit it on the plane weight wise we're going to put it in the bottom of the raft and we'll probably be podcasting talking about our adventure so i'll be sure to um you know share that with you and, and if you uh, we'll be definitely talking about your raft and the adventure and this starting point so i i'm looking forward to the rest of this so so thank you so much i i, I do want to just say our thoughts are with you down so i know things aren't super easy as far as uh, uh how everything is happening with covid um but I uh, hope everybody gets through this. And uh, I know that your team's working hard to get rafts out there to all us adventurers up here. So yeah, we, yeah, just on that real quick, we've been fortunate, uh, you know, I tell, cause we have a bunch of European customers and dealers and stuff. And they're kind of like, they see the United States and COVID and they're like, Oh my gosh, it, you know, the, the country is burning and, and, and I will not sugarcoat it. We have um, some major problems here, but it's kind of, we're such a big country that our states are almost kind of like each of the individual European countries and Colorado is fortunately doing pretty well. We're right next to Arizona, which is in real bad shape right now, but um, Colorado has done fairly well through the whole thing. You know, our, our governor's done a really good job and, and kind of guiding us through to some degree and we're fairly safe 
I, I, I use that word very delicately down in um, Southwest Colorado, but we don't have a lot of cases here. They, we do have some, they are um, kind of growing around, but we're kind of monitoring it very carefully. And we're very fortunate to be in a small town where uh, we don't have a lot of in and out of uh, potential um, in, in, infectious people. And, you know, we're able to take precautions at work to keep people separated. So, but it's been quite the year as far as that goes. Awesome. Yeah, it's been it's been quite quite a ride for all of us here, and uh, we're feeling very fortunate that we're you know we were in. I wasn't sure if we were going to have a hunting season or if we were going to be traveling, um, and to be here now, getting excited about a trip, it just really you know it shows how much has been taken away from you know obviously the people have been sick and impacted. It's it's been you know tragic for sure, but just for all of us and and how we have, we have so much freedom and so much fun in this life, and it's been definitely impacted. But I feel some of it's coming back, so I'm I'm very pleased about that. Um, okay, so if someone wants to find you or your rafts, where, where should we send them? Well, they can start by going to our website, which is alpacaraft.com. And then we do have uh, some really good dealers. They're sparsely located. We're pretty, um, you know, we're fortunate in that we're, we're kind of always have had high demand for our boat. So we don't have as big of a dealer network. But we've got, as you mentioned, Waddington Outdoors uh, and Chilliwack. And then we've got a couple of dealers in Alaska. We've got a couple of dealers in Colorado, um, one in Montana, and we're, we're slowly expanding those. So dealers are a great place to go. Uh, actually, right now, um, our lead time is more like seven to nine weeks for a new boat. So dealers are, in some cases, the better place to go because they may actually have stock on the, on the shelf or they have an order for stock that may be shipping in a week or two, and you can get a boat at that. Yeah, that's basically Sam is Sam is waiting. He's got everything. Everything that's in his store has been sold, and everything that's coming has been sold. So, so he's just trying to stay ahead of the demand. And and uh, but that's great. I think it you know obviously because you have a great product that people are getting excited about. It. So I think this is just the beginning of this. And I'm almost reluctant to talk about this on the podcast because it's like I don't want. I know that I got to get a little bit of a jump on people into some of these spots, but eventually we're going to catch up. Um, hey, do you want anything anything from you, Jenny, before we sign off? No, that's it. That's great. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Thor. I really appreciate it. I feel more confident going in there. And I've had so much fun on those rafts so far. Oh, it's great. I'm super excited to see what you guys do. I think that's just an awesome project you guys have going on. Because I think a lot of people get really intimidated when they think about going into the backcountry. And, you know, combining backcountry and hunting is, is, is definitely... <laughs> even more intimidating for people but it's so it's such an incredible way to adventure awesome so stick around for a second Thor. i'm just gonna wrap yeah. it up here okay everybody thanks so much for uh this checking us out for this episode with with thor and jenny and we lost selena she had to go back to work um but uh we're gonna pick this up again we'll be talking about gear and mountain safety uh we might we're going down the river tomorrow night with our friend christy long she's a, a whitewater guide we're gonna get her on after our our trip to talk a little bit about river safety so more stuff more fun stuff to come and we'll we'll see you at the next uh email podcast thanks so much